I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. He's the author of numerous books, including Mrs. Sherlock Holmes and All of the Lionheart, which we talked about last summer on this show. Brad's new book is True Raiders, the untold story of the 1909 expedition to find the legendary Ark of the Covenant. So, Brad, welcome back to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thanks for having me on again. Good to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you as well. I don't usually read books like this for my show, but it's always fun. It's always like a a vacation to read something like this, and it was a pleasure to read. Oh, thank you. It was kind of the same way for me writing it. Um, You know, it's kind of, I don't know if if it's what you'd call a vacation, but I wrote it, you know, (laughs) during the lockdown, and it kind of was a little bit, you know, kind of way of, getting out of things. So uh, I appreciate you saying so. So let's begin by telling us about the legends and the intrigue surrounding the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, so I think those are the the key words. I mean, those are the perfect words, actually. The, the legends and intrigue, um, it's become this legendary artifact precisely because we both know so little about it. And in some ways, we know a lot about it. So it, it. It's talked about in the Old Testament and with a lot of great detail, uh, you know, how to build it, how, how big it should be, what kind of wood to make it out of. Um, and at the same time, it's very mysterious as to what the Ark exactly is. I mean, it has all these these strange and terrible Old Testament powers. There's this story where David is, is taking it um, into Jerusalem on a horse cart, and it goes over a rock or something, and the ark starts to slip, and somebody reaches a hand out to hold it steady so it doesn't uh, fall into the road, and that person is, is immediately struck dead um, by the touch of God, because you can't touch the ark um, with your bare hand. So there's all these stories of it being used to conquer armies and cities, and at the same time it holds this holy place in the sanctuary where the the high priest um, can really kind of 
commune with God um, through the Ark. And, and there, of course, there's all these stories about what's in it, the remains of the, the tablets of the Old Testament, or, or all sorts of things. Um, so there's all these stories around it, and it's to make it even more mysterious is the Ark shows up in the Bible, but then it disappears. When Jerusalem is conquered and, and ransacked, there's, um, it, it disappears from any further talk of the chronicles of, of, of anybody. And um, that's where people kind of step in and say, well, what happened to the Ark? Because uh, even the, the lists of the things that are taken into to Babylon um, out of Jerusalem, the Ark doesn't appear on those lists. So it becomes this thing um, of great mystery and great intrigue um, because of what it is, this, this holy um, artifact to, you know, to the, the Old Testament, to the times of the Old Testament. Um, but also, does it still exist today? And the next question is, of course, you know, did it even exist at all? You know, because it hasn't been seen in thousands of years. And, you know, we don't know. Was it just a story? Was it a metaphor in the Bible? Or were they talking about something real? So there's lots of stuff to go in on this little um, box covered in gold. Mm-hmm. And as I was reading it, I had this sense that it must have been as much of a kind of archaeological dig or treasure hunt for you doing the research as it was for people, these particular people that you write about who underwent this treasure hunt kind of thing to to find it in Jerusalem. Oh, oh yeah, um, because, you know, like I said, I wasn't getting my, my hands dirty out in the, the tunnels. Um, but, yeah, it, it's become this... this not only a possibly physical artifact, but but kind of a uh, philosophical one, too. You know, if you can find out what the Ark really was or what it is. And yeah, I'd be lying if I said, you know, if, when I started this, if there wasn't a part of, you know, in the back of my brain saying, well, you know, if you, if you see what they looked for and follow this story... Maybe you'll find the ark at the end. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that was definitely part of it, too. Yeah. And now talk about some of the information that was used to find it, because there were also earlier attempts to find the ark. And and in order to do that, um, they had they had to have some clues, some starting points, some reason to make such an effort. Where where did that begin, and what was the source or sources of information that, that these people were using? Yeah, that's a great question. So there was kind of a, a, an arc um, mania going on at the time, and this is, you know, right right before the 19, early 1900s, where, um, you know, people had started going into Jerusalem and finding, you know, actual physical things there. And this is also related to the British going to Egypt and finding all the treasures there. Um, this sense of history being something real. And with biblical archaeology, it was a way of saying that the Bible was real, that it finally wasn't just um, stories in a book, that they were finding things in the sand of, of Jerusalem. So they started, people were looking for the Ark everywhere. There was a big expedition in Ireland, of all places, 
that didn't find anything. And so they, it was kind of in the consciousness. And for this group, um, their kind of way in was this Finnish uh, biblical scholar whose name was uh, Dr. Walter Jubelius. It's this great name. Uh, and, and he had studied the Old Testament, and he claimed that he had found a code in the book of Ezekiel that showed him where the ark was, that the ark had not been carried away by the conquerors, but had stayed um, in Jerusalem all this time, hidden away for, for um, you know, for the, the next temple to be built. Um, so he had this code that it was every um, sixth or seventh letter, and, and you would loop things around, and there were it went through several languages, and he showed it to this group of, of British uh, businessmen and ex-soldiers. They called themselves the Syndicate, um, which is great for a writer like me to be able to use that word a lot. Uh, and they um, they were persuaded by it because it sounds kind of sketchy when you first hear it, the secret code in the Bible, but the secret codes were also, um, ciphers were also um, popular uh, around this time, too, that people had, had claimed to have found them in Shakespeare and, and other things, and certainly the Bible. And what he was drawing out of Ezekiel were all these terrific sentences, like, go 40 paces, uh, this way, turn north, and you will behold the fire of God. He created maps, and it was very persuasive. And they started, you know, they found their leader and, and raised some money and just took off for Jerusalem. And I think that's always the part that gets me, is, is um, that they just went and did it. And because I think today, if someone came to you with this kind of a business opportunity, um, you know, I don't know, you'd maybe be more wary of it. But then, uh, you know, and this is 1909, not that far away, uh, they jumped at the chance. Yeah, I agree. In many ways, it seems kind of far-fetched to invest a lot of money into a project like this that is essentially or most likely just a bunch of smoke and mirrors with, with very – I mean, you'd think that these people are rational-headed people who uh but but i guess back in those in those days money was was different than it is today in a sense the way people use it um like there was a certain degree of um well today they call it privilege but to use money in ways that we might consider irrational or, or irresponsible, but to them, mm. these military people who didn't have a war to fight, they're probably still looking for adventure. And for them, this might be much more valuable than some something else to invest in. Yeah, that's a terrific point. And I think it's right on that there's, um, you know, on the surface of it, like you said, no kind of rational <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's not maybe the best investment, but um, they were seeing, once they thought about, they did look at it kind of rationally in that they said, you know, um, if we find the Ark, it will be worth something like $200 million uh, back then, which is just an incalculable amount of money. So they were, were definitely motivated by that possibility. But I think absolutely it was that, 
adventure. And someone remarked to me, they said, well, this is only something the British could do. That it was this kind of blue sky adventure that you see something on the horizon and you just go there. And, you know, we've seen this work out for better and, and in many ways for worse um, for the empire as it was, but there, there's something about just seeing something or just a hint of something on the horizon and just going. I think you're absolutely right. It has to do with that kind of money um, and, and the privilege word and just being restless um, that this is what you were supposed to do as, as, you know, not having a war anymore, but being a soldier or being a nobleman is this kind of adventure. So there, there was an interesting cast of characters in the syndicate and in the uh, the excavation, could you tell us about some of them? Yeah, um, you know, a few people since it's been out have remarked to me that the cast of characters is something like out of a, a Monty Python um, <laughs> sketch or, or film, and and it's hard to disagree because it's really what I love about stories like this is you just can't make them up. Um, so we have the the Finnish uh, biblical scholar. Um, who, of course, goes on the expedition um, with all his ciphers and, and marked-up Bibles and is there to, to kind of guide them. Um, the leader of the group who they choose is a nobleman um, by the name of Montague Parker, and he goes by Monty. Um, and he's, he, to me, is a really interesting um, character. He's the second son of the Earl of Morley. So he has some, you know, some cachet, um, but he doesn't inherit the title, the estate, the everything. Um, so he's kind of looking for his way, and he's an ex-soldier too, so I think he's motivated as that kind of second child um, a little bit to, to find his own place in the world. Um, and he's interesting because I think his his reasons for going change over the expedition. I think he goes there for fortune and glory, but I think that changes a little bit. And otherwise they bring along all sorts of um, misfits and, and ex-soldiers go. Um, there's a few in particular that are really kind of like you talked about adventure fueled and adrenaline junkies, just like looking for something to do. And they've never been, to this part of the world, and they've certainly never been archaeologists. And, you know, day they go, of course, they go in a yacht, and days later they're in Jerusalem digging in tunnels that date back to King David's time, and they have no idea what they're doing. And they even bring psychics with them to try and help them locate the Ark. Um, and their number grows and shrinks as, as they're there for uh, a couple years as the expedition um, goes on, but it's always this cast of, of people that are all working towards the same goal, more or less, but at the same time, they're working against each other, too. You say they were working against each other. Talk about that. Yeah, it's because part of, once they get into the tunnels, um, where, where the cipher has told them to find the Ark, and this is, uh, a very famous network of tunnels, um, Hezekiah's tunnel, you know, dating back to, like I said, King David, and even before that. Um, they kind of split, you know, between people who 
believe the cipher, and then when they don't find the arc right away, there's people who start to question the cipher, and then there's um, people who try to allegedly steal the cipher, uh, people in, in competition with them who also want the arc. Um, so there's all sorts of factions, and there's local people, and they finally, because they have no archaeologists on their team, they bring aboard um, this great, great character who is a priest in Jerusalem. Uh, his name is Father Vincent, and he's also an amateur archaeologist, and he goes on to become very highly acclaimed. And he goes in, and, and they don't tell him they're looking for the Ark, and he's the one that kind of looks at it all through, believe it or not, a scientific viewpoint. And he becomes the person who kind of balances um, God and um, the scientific of measuring out what this tunnel was used for and, and figuring out all the, the bubbling waters and fountains, even though that, you know, so this, it was this tunnel and, and the fountain um, outside of it were, were in uh, the Bible. And he's, he's the only one who kind of reconciles that and kind of everyone else is kind of as at odds with each other the longer it goes on and they don't find the ark. You know, it's like any kind of project. If you don't get your desired result, people start to turn on each other. Mm -hmm. So this syndicate, this group of people, had received permission to do this dig, but they were keeping the actual object of it secret from everybody, weren't they? Yeah, and that's a good point. So they negotiated... Um, so the, the Turks controlled Jerusalem at this time. So they negotiated with the Turks for the digging rights. Um, and negotiated is kind of, I can't think of a better word, but it's not the right word because essentially they just paid them off. Um, but they paid them off for, you know, a certain set of things they could do. And, you know, they didn't tell them. And once they got into... Jerusalem, they also had to do the same with the mayor and, and, and local officials and that kind of thing. And it seems to be a matter of them just bribing them, but they didn't tell them what they were looking for. In fact, they told the locals that they were digging because they were going to build a hospital and maybe a school. Uh, and this is, this is terrible, right? So they're, they're digging for treasure that they are ostensibly going to steal and take back to England. I don't think we can say that enough. Um, and they're telling everyone, oh, we're just building a school. Um, so that's awful, obviously. But I think that changes, too, as the expedition goes on, which made it a much more uh, attractive story for me. But yeah, in the beginning, they're just throwing money at everyone to, to get in there. And there was an interesting part in the story which was very reminiscent of the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, where um, I think it was Juvelius who was encouraged to go meet with the high rabbi of Jerusalem. And he didn't want to go, but Monty Parker was kind of insistent that he go. And Juvelius didn't really understand why he should go. And there was... There was a bunch of intrigue around that, including things that happened during the meeting and after the meeting, which, as I said, was very reminiscent 
of the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah, I, there's a there's a few spots that really, for me, and I'm a, a you know lifelong fan of that movie. I think because I saw it when I was a kid, um, but a few scenes like that that really resonate. And you know, in the beginning, I thought, well, maybe I, I you know want to distance myself from the movie because uh, this is a different story. But then these scenes kept showing up that were right out of it. So I said, okay, you know, it's, it's, it must be there for a reason. Yeah, he meets with the, the chief rabbi, and he's very scared to do so, because Juvelius um, really holds his information close. He's afraid everyone's going to steal it. Um, and that chapter comes from his own account of what happened. Um so you get this, in Juvelius' account, it's very paranoid. So I, I tried to put that in that, that chapter because there's this sense that the rabbi has his own kind of mysterious information that he won't share either. And it becomes this weird, tense moment where both sides seem to know something the other doesn't, or both sides might just know nothing at all. Um, but the the tension is all around, do they or don't they have secret information? Um, you know, is there secret information that can make you um, a stronger believer or a better follower? You know, and here in the case of, of people of, of two different religions, um, it's really a fascinating scene. I thought about Raiders a lot, too, when I wrote it, probably too much, because it, it probably leaks in there. Um, but I, I figured I couldn't avoid it. But there's there's a lot of that um, in here because it's it's Jerusalem. You know, everyone is everyone shares everything, um, but everyone has a different stake in it. And that's not the the perfect way to put it. But I think listeners understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And even in that encounter, there was a a beautiful young woman who it's hard to tell for certain, but it's it appears that she's perhaps trying to warn Javelius of the risk of, of what he's getting into. Yeah. Um, so he sees this kind of vision. She waits on him and then he becomes obsessed with this woman and then sees her later. Um, though that part's a little iffier. Um, but she does seem to warn him to kind of stay away from this part of it, he's looking for, um, Juvelius kind of gets sidetracked a little from looking from the ark, and he becomes obsessed with finding the tomb of Moses. Um, and, and he can't really get Parker and the others to, to follow him, um, so he goes off on a few trips on his own and, and tries to make this um, the focus, but he's, he's warned against it, and meanwhile there's, there's people trying to um, steal the cipher. And the interesting thing about his chapters, um, so every chapter kind of has a different narrator or point of view, and they're all from that person's own account of the expedition. And so they're all different kinds of sources for this, but some people, you know, wrote down what happened to them, um, and some were from other reports. Um, but Juvelius is, is the strangest because um, part of it is fiction but he's it's all with with real people and he insists it's real so it's hard to say and, and right near the end of it he is 
you know, he's found that he's been suffering from malaria. Um, so he's had these kind of hallucinations and dreams. So you don't know kind of what is really real or not. So I, I leave a lot of that up to the reader. Um, but yeah, he has this, this warning to stay away um, from this ancient knowledge that, that he's been kind of going up against and, and just can't get enough of. And there's this woman, high society American woman, Ava Astor, who's somehow connected to this story. Could you talk about her significance in the story? Yeah, so she comes into the story right at the beginning. Um, she's American. She marries into the, the Astor family, um, divorces out of it, and moves to London and fabulously wealthy. Um, also, the newspapers all refer to her as the most beautiful woman in the world. Uh, so she becomes the, like the center of all uh, gossip columning in England at this time, even more so than the royals, I would, would argue. So I've read a lot of those papers. Uh, and she gets linked to Monty. Um, she's seen at all these parties with him and at this racetrack. And there's this moment where she seems to dump him for someone who's much more um, successful, has more money, because Monty's kind of on the edge of all that, um, even though he's, he's part of, a, of that family. And according to this, this gossip column, uh, Monty at this point had been, well, I did kind of piece this together, but he had been offered the chance to lead the expedition, and, and he didn't say yes right away. And she says, you know, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go with this guy or whatever. And he says, well, you won't see me for a few months. I'm going to look for the Ark of the Covenant, which is a great line to give someone who, who's just dumped you. <laughs> and um, she pauses for a moment and she says, well, if you find it, come back and let me know. So I think it becomes like a little bit more of an impetus for him to go. But my worry was that then she kind of drops out of the story. But she comes back at the end um, in a way I wasn't prepared for. Uh, but I was really grateful for it because I think she's a terrific person to write about. And I wanted to write more about her. Um, she goes through kind of her own journey through this kind of looking for something mysterious, looking for something speculative, like the Ark. Um, she ends up being one of the, the first people in King Tut's tomb. And there's this story of this necklace that then is given to her daughter, and she kind of spirals off into all these same kind of things that the Ark is. I mean, the, the book's really about that story, um, but it spirals off into some others, and it did so on its own. Um, and I just said, okay, if we're going to go this way, we will. Because it's also about, you know, what does it mean? Just like you said in the beginning, what does it mean to just follow something on kind of blind faith alone? And I don't think faith is the best word there, but maybe even just on blind story alone. Like this arc is a really good story. You know, should you just go all in and follow it to the ends of the earth? I mean, what are the the great things about that, because I think there are great things about great stories and being, you know, enthralled by just really um, interesting tales, but there's also um, 
bad endings to a lot of this kind of conspiracy thinking. Um, so that's how she comes into it, too. But she's just great. I, she's just a, a fascinating woman. And there's another fascinating thing where I don't remember how she got invited to to enter King Tut's tomb before it was disturbed and before anything yeah. was removed from it. But in your description of one of the th- items that she sees or that they see is something that looks like an ark by all description. And it made me wonder if that was the Ark of the Covenant or if perhaps there are more arks like it. And I'm just curious if you saw that similarity and if so, if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, thanks. That's what I was trying to do. So that that made my day. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, how does she get the invitation? She's Ava Astor. Um, She gets invites to all sorts of things. And I I couldn't believe, but she's, you know, she was a friend of a friend and she was invited to look at the undisturbed tomb. It was open, um, but they hadn't taken anything out yet. And she goes in with her friend and her daughter. And this changes her daughter's life going into this tomb. And this is one of those, this, for this book, I did a lot of it. It's right about things I don't like. Um, I really, I, whatever it is, I hate mummies. Um, and just all that stuff. So I had to, to research all this and, and, and plot out what the tomb looked like. And she does. She sees this thing. It looks, you know, the shape is like the Old Testament ark. There's the wooden poles through the rings, the only real difference is Anubis, the god of death, the dog, the jackal, sorry, sits on top of it. And other people have, you know, scholars have noted that this looks a lot like the Ark and have said kind of what I thought when I saw it and, and what you thought too, that, you know, could this just be another Ark? Um, and what does that mean? Um, does that mean something... Like, really, I mean, this goes back to the old theological argument, you know, if we meet aliens from another planet, does that, you know, diminish our place in the universe, in the the eyes of God or or whoever? Um, And some people say, well, if the Egyptians had an ark for similar religious purposes, does that diminish um, the Old Testament ark, or does it make it more powerful, more interesting, in that all these different um, religions had something like an ark. Maybe that makes it more interesting. Um, and I, I kind of fall, I think, in that second camp. I think it's it's fascinating the different, um, maybe sometimes not so different, but separated by time and space, um, religions and, and cultures will have similar things. Um, to me, that speaks to more truth than than dilution, I guess. But yeah, I urge everybody to go, because um, I didn't put a picture of it in the book, um, but you can find pictures of it easy. And it does. It looks really like, the, like how we think the Ark of the Covenant should look. It's just really fascinating. And there's what is speculated as the radioactive element of the contents of the Ark because of the way it's 
encased in solid gold, and also the legends of how the high priests wore these gold, um, like gold armor to protect themselves from the Ark when they would visit it. And there was something about how in legend the high priest would would inspect or visit the Ark once a year in the central part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. Yeah, to me, there's no more mysterious object in human history, whether you say it's literary history in the Bible or history history, than the Ark, because there's so much stuff, like, you know, I gave that long list in the beginning, and I didn't even talk about that. Um, yeah, that we consider it, you know, it would be radioactive, and certainly the expedition did. Um, Juvelius has all these warnings in the cipher that you'll encounter radium, um, and you have to be very careful. And then, But he thought, well, the half-life would be over, so we'd be okay. They didn't find radium there that they knew of, but they, I won't say too many spoilers, but there were cancer deaths, you know, and that, that could mean absolutely nothing. But, of course, it just also fuels speculation, right? Feels that the story will never end. That well, if you know, if they died of a sudden onset cancer, that could have been radium. Again, I'm not saying that, but that's how the stories move on. And and yeah, the stuff that the priests wore, and they had the jewels on the vest that, in in some accounts, would would light up to communicate to God because you couldn't communicate directly. Um, it had to be a series of in this case, physical signs, um, yes or no questions. Only the high priest could ask God. Um, so it's just, it's so mysterious, and that's just such a great story to think about. And also that ram's head necklace that was found inside King Tut's tomb that was given to Ava's daughter, Alice, which had these strange or at least purportedly had these strange properties or effects on Ava and and people around her. Yeah, um, her husband at the time said when she put it on, um, she was given an unearthly aspect. And her going into the tomb as a child um, changes her life because she engages in all this kind of speculative stuff with, um, reincarnation, psychics, and she builds an institute, has Faraday cages for psychics to go in to better understand their past lives. And I talked to her son and the necklace, of which no picture can be found, also has completely disappeared. He has no idea what, I just wanted to see it, because it's supposedly just beautiful beyond compare, and she was given it out of King Tut's tomb, which, you know, is, is kind of problematic, to say the least. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just kind of, you know, what does it take for a story to take hold, like these kind of stories, in our minds and just kind of keep going and keep going? And why do we love them so much? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the intrigue and, and also the adventure. Like we talked about why people would pursue something like this. But there's always been great value in adventure. It's just a matter of how far people might take it. 
Yeah. So you mentioned that you you don't like mummies, and you had an aversion to that aspect of it. What's that about? I'm curious. Um, no, I, it's <laughs> it's nothing. Um, it's like Indiana Jones and the snakes, right? Uh-huh. He doesn't like the snakes. I just don't like mummies. Um, I don't know why. I think part of it is um, I remember seeing, I mean, not to psychoanalyze myself, but I, I've seen mummies as a kid in museums and not wrapped mummies or in the sarcophagi, but unwrapped mummies. And the British Museum is, is famous for this. And I just really dislike that. Not because it's kind of a horrific image to see as a kid. I think it still is as an adult. But it's, just, it's also, I just always thought it was really wrong. Um, not that I had like a strong political leanings as a kid, but I don't think the mummies should be in a museum, I guess, is, is what I'm saying. Um, especially these days. I mean, if people want to study them or look at them, great. I mean, that's a different thing, but on display is, is a little... I don't know. Something just doesn't seem right about it. Plus, I'm superstitious. So, um, yeah, I think they're just asking to, for the mummy's curse. And so, plus, the the original mummy movie is absolutely terrifying with Boris Karloff. So that might be part of it too. <laughs> yeah, I I can I can understand and relate to that. When I was a kid growing up in New York City, um, me and some of the other street urchins, we would. Uh, go down to Chinatown and watch these old black and white horror double features. You know, <laughs> it cost like 25 cents to get in <laughs> to that. And uh, it was, oh, wow. it was a lot of fun, but yeah, at that age, we're very impressionable. Yeah. Fortunately, nothing like the kind of stuff they create today. <laughs> oh, I know. I, I, I really feel for, um, the kids today because that that old stuff that old universal monster stuff that's scary but it's not you know it, it's very scary but it's it's removed the stuff today is is just so apocalyptic so yeah yeah i don't like that the the new modern iterations of that at all i i avoid it like the plague no yeah yeah <laughs> so it was also interesting that it was a kind of strange or, or mysterious intersection of different historical timelines or time periods at these sites that uh, the story revolves around. Like there, there's stuff around the Phoenicians and Egyptian connections, some of the artifacts that are found and some of the history connected to it. And I would love for you to talk about how that all fits in and, and where the arc fits into the historical timeline and also give us a sense of the actual place places that they were searching for the ark in jerusalem yeah um, let me start with that second one so it's it's the good thing for me um so i'm not an archaeologist um but i had to learn a lot about this area um was that they kind of stick to one spot so i was able to read a lot on it and, and, and kind of go through it. And even better, um, if it wasn't for the pandemic, I, I had planned to go there. Um, but it's now a, a tourist spot. Um, 
uh, Hezekiah's tunnel, and you can actually go through it, and you have to take your shoes off because there's, there's water, but you can go all the way through. It's lit now. It wasn't lit back then. Um, I'd love to do that someday. So it's really um, a, a, a tunnel system um, connected in a few ways from a, a fountain to a pool um, and then a big, long, straight tunnel um, with a curve in the middle um, underneath. And there's ways that it goes up and, um, and kind of through the, through the, the um, hill slash mountain. This is right outside of Jerusalem where they're digging. Um, so they're not really near the wall. They're kind of near it, but they're, they're far enough away that they, I think, get a little anonymity. Um, but it's a really kind of small, located um, area. So I was able to study that and hopefully uh, recreate it. Um, it's very dark. It's very um, kind of mysterious in that some ways, some parts of it were clearly cut and chiseled away by men, and some parts were natural. So a lot of what they have to figure out is what's, what's old and what was created. Um, and the legend is that, that this tunnel was used by King David to um, spring up um, behind his enemies and, and, and win a battle, win a war. Um, <laughs> excuse me. As far as um, the timeline of things, uh, what I wanted to do with that is a lot like um, what you were talking about with the the ark um, shape found in, in Tut's tomb. Is so what what they find when they start digging in these tunnels is you know they don't find they thought they were going to find the ark within 24 hours and they don't. Um, but they start to find all this pottery and all this other kind of stuff that they just kind of aren't interested in. Um, but Father Vincent is very interested in it, and he's an expert. So he starts finding and dating it back to all different kinds um, kinds of times, but also kinds of places. Like you mentioned, they, he finds a bowl um, from ancient Egypt. Uh, you know, somehow come all the way here. So he starts to get this sense, and he's the only one who's really interested in this, of uh, that this was not just a tunnel for King David. Um, you know, with 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 the the tribes coming in and establishing Jerusalem, but this was much older. And more than that, it was also a place used by people from all over, and somehow. Um, you know, someone either had collected something from Egypt or brought it over or someone had brought it in, um, that this is way older than they could have dreamed. And they were already dreaming pretty old um, with the Ark. And the only thing I wanted to establish with that is that kind of back to that, that Anubis um, Ark is that we might be you know, talking in, in looking for the ark, we might be looking for something even older than that, that there are older stories. And um, for Father Vincent, you know, this doesn't phase him, phase his faith in the slightest. He loves it. Um, he thinks it's, it's intoxicating that um, he's finding Phoenician stuff and, and Egyptian stuff all way before um, the Israelites were there. 
uh, and this just this shows that there's this kind of larger humanity to it all. And that's all I was trying to. Um, I wasn't, tr- you know, going for something like a really specific um, uh, point or thesis. Just that there was kind of a bigger story out there um, than maybe just the arc or just this um, group of people. That it might be a story also shared by all these these groups of people. Um, or there might be similarities just as we know there are differences. Because Father Vincent would look at all these pots and say, well, look how similar this is. And, um uh, I try not to go into too much detail on the pots because he really loves his his um, his pottery, um, but it's really it's it's fascinating to me, and it's also it's they don't find the ark there, but they find these pots, and if they're finding the ark to learn well to be rich, but to learn more about the people who had it, or to learn more about God. Um, you know, they're finding these bits of pottery and they're learning tons about those people um, who brought it. And those people are really forgotten. Um, so it's all kind of knowledge and I think it's all kind of related, um, but it's just trying to make it into to a bigger picture, I think. Mm-hmm. And also under that hill or, or mountain where Ezekiel's tunnel is, there was a network, a, a maze of tunnels that they were searching through and trying to find, and it had a, an air of, of great mystery and intrigue just in that, like thinking about, well, why would they dig these mazes of tunnels underground, and also wondering where do they lead or what's the purpose of them? So I found as I was reading it just this this anticipation of, of what they were going to find, because there must be some some good reason for it to do so much digging work. Yeah, and, and the whole, you know, again, the theory, the driving theory isn't so much the, the cipher or the code. It's that, you know, when Jerusalem was attacked, they took the ark and hid it away in one of these tunnels because they knew they couldn't look, and they were so intricate and so hard to get to. And since then, you know, some may have fallen closed. Um, You know, it's a very intriguing argument to make that, you know, why don't we know where the ark is? Well, it's still there. It's, It's somewhere, not in plain sight, but hidden just below everything we know. And, you know, a lot of those tunnels still haven't been explored to this day because it's on holy ground and you can't do it. I mean, they bribed their way in and explored a lot of it, but the question that kind of drives them is the same one you have, you know, how far do they go? And near the end, you know, Monty is convinced through the cipher that one of them goes all the way up to underneath the Dome of the Rock, one of the most religious sites in Jerusalem, and and he's convinced that somewhere in there is the Ark. And they even make an expedition in through the Dome of the Rock, which creates tremendous controversy. Yeah, it's the boldest of moves, and it's also the most desperate, is when everything's kind of run out and with the the wolves at the door. Um, And again, this is a scene from the movie. 
Monty and his and his small crew dress in disguise, and they go to the Dome of the Rock, and they, they bribe their way in, and they go underneath. There's a small uh, uh, natural cave underneath the dome, and it's called the Well of Souls. And they go there, and they start to dig. And we don't know um, the kind of ending of the book. It's kind of, what did they find? Um and all we really know is that they started digging, and, and three days later, most every newspaper all across the world had the headlines, um, a version of, you know, have Englishmen found the Ark? Have they escaped with the treasures of Solomon? That there were riots in Jerusalem um, once they found that they had been digging under the dome, which is this very, very completely off limits to this kind of thing. Um, and they escaped. Um, but the whole back part of the book is, well, what did they escape with, if anything? Because um, I think there's, there's all differing accounts from them and, you know, trying to, trying to figure out um, what exactly happened. Yeah, but it, it ends in, you know, what begins as a very secretive enterprise ends with headlines all over the world, and, and Monty Parker is the wanted man because they want to know um, what he did. It, it's, it's like I said a while ago, you can't make this stuff up. And as I was reading this, as the story was unfolding, I was thinking, well, you know, if, if you're privateers like this and, and adventurers at this level and you actually find the Ark, then you have to decide what are you going to do with it? Are you going to are you going to share it with the world? Are you going to tell people about it? Or are you going to keep it for yourself? I mean, there's, there's so many human intrigues around this and questions. Yeah. Um, I, I knew the hardest part of this would be the ending. Because I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is such a terrific ending. But in the end, I didn't have to worry about it because really those kind of questions they kind of take over. And I love those kind of questions because you're right. They, it ends up being a very public thing. So even if they did have it, um, they couldn't just come out and say it. Um, they couldn't just sell it. You know, what would they do with it? So I think it, it's a complicated um, thing because it also brings in that question of what if the ark really is real? You know, what if somebody found it tomorrow? What would that mean? Would people be happy? Would people be angry? Um, what do you do with it? I think that kind of story itself, is it's great to go and speculate, but then you get to the end. Um, what do you do if you actually have it? I think that's a terrific point. And I'm curious if there are any lingering questions besides that or unfinished thoughts that you still have about this story that we haven't talked about. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think there will always be questions for me about this story, but that doesn't bother me. I know sometimes with stories that bothers me, it feels like, oh, I could find that answer somewhere. I think there's answers to this story that are kind of unknowable. You know, is it still there? Is it out there? Or did it never exist? Um, I think those kind of big questions are really part of it. But I'm kind of glad they're still out there because that goes back to, I think, when you go all in on these kind of stories, you can end up really disappointed. 
Um, but I think the good part of it, I think there really is something to be said for that kind of initial burst of adventure and the adventure of a story. I think that's good if that can stick around as a story, as a story itself. I think that, um, you know, the arc is most mysterious as a story, right? If we found it tomorrow and, and did all kinds of MRI testing and, you know, would it, what would be more powerful, more mysterious, that or the story we're, we're talking about today? So I, I really like the, the mystery of it, and I'm, I'm okay having some questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I I definitely see the value in that. It's like demystifying something that has been such a great mystery for so many thousands of years um, could be quite a disservice to humanity and to our our curiosity and and just the openness of possibility of things beyond our uh, our current way of thinking. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good way of putting it. Because it is, it is fascinating. I mean, some of the stories in the Bible, and especially that one, where there are so many stories around it, and it really makes it seem very real, and yet there's no way to know for certain. Yeah, oh yeah, and that's the relationship I was really interested in. Um, is it because we don't know for certain, does that make it more more real or more important to us but it feels so so close at the same time it feels feels real Mm -hmm. yeah it's a fascinating story and i'm so glad that you dug into it and wrote about it and brought in as much of the history that does exist out there around the ark and all of this because it it was such a fun read and it was fun to uh, play around in that mystery Oh, thank you. That's it was it was certainly um, fun for me too, except for the mummies part. <laughs> yeah. So my guest has been Brad Ricca. He's the author of numerous books, including Mrs. Sherlock Holmes, Olive, The Lionheart, and his new book is True Raiders: The Untold Story of the 1909 Expedition to Find the Legendary Ark of the Covenant. Brad, it's been so much fun to talk with you. Thanks, Tony. It was my pleasure. That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 